Royce sang about the fact that Jesus doesn't need us, but he lets us put our hands in. What a privilege. And that's what we want to do through prayer, through giving, through going uh, during this missions conference. And to encourage our missionaries. That's one of the most important things that we seek to do during this time together. And it's my delight to introduce to you our keynote speaker, Dr. Dale, Dale Marshfield, and his wife, Karen. Karen, are you here somewhere? We have not been able to locate her this morning. She's not here yet. She's in the building. <laughs> She's heard you before, so okay. But let's give a warm South welcome to Dale and Karen. Dale, would you stand? Good to have you. I just wanted to mention, and most of this is in his bio in the brochure so you can see it, but for many years serving in Africa and uh, uh, has a doctorate. He's been in education both here in the States and uh, overseas and now is working in rural India. He goes into places no one has ever heard of and spends a couple weeks teaching pastors and uh, living in unusual places and eating unusual food something I could never do, um, but he is doing it faithfully. And we are together uh, working on ABTS, which is the Asian Biblical Theological Seminary. The president of that seminary is also in our conference, Jim Blumenstock. And so you get a chance to talk uh, to them and find out what is going on. But it's a delight to have Dale here. Looking forward to it, my friend. Let's give him another hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. It uh, is my privilege to be here with you and to participate in your missions emphasis this week. Uh, what a great thing, you know, a lot of churches aren't giving time to missions like this. And I'm so grateful that here at Southview are still committed to uh, listening to what is happening around the globe as God's servants are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as was read earlier, as it is bearing fruit all over the world, and it is, and that's exciting. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you. When, uh, when Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, there were probably about 300 million people in the world. Today, there are 7,700 million people in the world. That's 7.7 .7 billion people. 2.3 billion of those people are Christians, making Christianity the largest religion in the world. For now, the Pew Research Center says that by mid-century, Islam, which is in the second position, will overtake Christianity and Islam will be the largest religion on the planet. Think about that. When Jesus, in 40 AD, Jesus went to heaven, there were no Muslims. When he uttered the Great Commission, Islam did not exist, and it would not have existed for another 500 years. But today, there are some people sitting in this room who, before you die, Islam will be the largest religion on our planet. So the question that I have for us this morning is, is there a reason for the Church of Jesus Christ to continue, after 2,000 years of missionary activity, to be concerned about heralding, sacrificially, the call of the kingdom throughout the world? And I think the answer to that is obvious, yes. Not because we're in competition with another religion. It's not about that. Uh, not be, it's not about statistics. It's not about percentages. 
It's about individual people who need the touch of God on their lives. This morning, I really want to think with you about uh, one idea, uh, one understanding that I would hope we'd come away from this together appreciating, and it goes like this. Though the situation in today's world is dark, the keys to success are the same today as they have always been. The power of God's call and the grip that call has on God's servants. Darkness, the power of the call of the kingdom, and the grip that that call has on the servants of God. Uh, this morning I would like to look with you at the book of Colossians. See if I can catch up with myself here. Um, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. In that short letter, Paul writes to a church that he did not plant. Uh, we learned from the first chapter that it was probably planted by Epaphras. Uh, given the ministry that I am currently involved in, I like to think that Epaphras was one of the people who attended the teaching Paul did at the school of one Tyrannus in Acts 19. It says that Paul gathered disciples at this school for two years and he taught them the word of God. And as a result of those classes, all of Asia heard the word. Colossae would be a city of Asia. And it's very possible that Epaphras was one of the students in those classes. Just like I go to India four or five times a year. We gather 45 students together. We teach them the word of God. And then they go out into villages all over Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka. Villages that don't have churches and they share the gospel of Christ. And I think that's sort of how Colossae began. But in this church we see all of the elements of modern missions. In, in verse 12, uh, Paul writes this about the Colossians. He says... That the Father has qualified you to be inheritance uh, of the, or to inherit with the saints of the kingdom of light. These Colossians had been qualified. God had done everything necessary to bring them into the kingdom of his dear son. But then interestingly enough, in the very next verse, Paul changes pronouns. He goes from talking about the Colossians in verse 12, and he kind of universalizes the statement. He says... He, for he has rescued us, not just you Colossians. He has rescued us, every Christian, everywhere that has ever existed. He's talking about the fruit of God's mission activity in our world. He's rescued us from the powers of darkness. He's delivered us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He's redeemed us from the guilt and the consequences of our sin. And that's missions, isn't it? That's the whole thing in a nutshell. It's woven into the story of the Colossian church, and it's woven into the history of missions. Darkness, the call of the kingdom, and the grip that call has on God's servants. And so I want to think with that about you this morning. I think about that, that, those three ideas with you. The story at Colossae starts in the darkness. He has delivered us from the power or the authority of darkness. There is a, there is a tragedy in that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a room where it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. You ever been in that? I mean, so dark, your eyes can't adjust. You can see nothing. And, and in that situation, it's at least a little bit comforting to hear somebody say, Stay, I'm over here. Watch it. Don't trip over the dead body. That's a little Halloween humor. Um, 
There's nothing worse than to be in that kind of darkness and have total silence. But that's the situation into which the gospel came in, Cor in Colossae. The people, he says, were under the authority of darkness. It's a very strong term. It's a term that's actually used of uh, Jesus' experience in the, gospel, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. Here is Jesus, the only perfect person that has ever been on this planet. A man who lived his entire life teaching beautiful things, doing great works of compassion and love, demonstrating the character of a God who is full of grace and truth. Here's Jesus in the garden, the only person probably that's ever lived since Adam of whom it could be said he was a good man. And all of a sudden, the Father allows the authority of darkness to marshal all of its forces against him. Jesus says this when the uh, officers come to arrest him. While I was with you daily in the temple, did you, not lay, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour... And the power of darkness are yours. He's saying, I was with you, you never touched me. But now the Father has released me into the authority. That's literally what it says. The authority of the darkness. Uh, we know that John says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But that's not what it's talking about here. This is more like a realm. This is a, a domain in which people not, do not exist freely doing things they like to do. This is a domain in which people exist as, as slaves. They can do nothing but surrender to the authority of darkness. And, and it's so perfectly illustrated in the life of Christ here in the garden when he surrenders to these soldiers. He surrenders to Satan's plans and Satan's stratagems. He surrenders, they take him, they put him on a cross. Satan thinks he's got the victory, but the decided victory was God's because at the cross, God defeated the power of him who had the, the power of death, even the devil. Paul says, you lived your life under the authority of darkness. That's the world without Christ. And the, the only thing that that uh, challenges the darkness is the call. The call of the kingdom, the call of God. When we look at these Colossians in verse 21, in the, in, under the authority of darkness, it says, once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In the darkness, people existed God's enemies. The God who created them, the God who loves them, the God who did for them what no one else could do, offered his son in their place on the cross, took their punishment and their judgment. This God is their enemy in the darkness. The darkness is the realm into which God sends his call. The darkness is the realm of mission activity. Now, I, I know if you're thinking with me, well, the darkness is everywhere. It's just as dark in Lansing as it is over in Calcutta, India. And that's true. That's true. The darkness is everywhere. And it's into the darkness that God sends missions, that God sends the call. Uh, there are a lot of things about the darkness that we would rather avoid, that we don't want to really pay attention to that we don't want to confront. I go to India, uh, as I said, three or four, sometimes five times a year. I work with rural pastors. Uh, the rural world of India is very different from the modern city world of India. 
Um, there is a, uh, a, a level of uh, abuse, of evil that exists in the rural world that uh, is just terrible. Uh, you, you go to India and you see things like dowry-related deaths. 8,000 women a year die dowry-related deaths in India. Dowry is this system that exists in India whereby a woman has to pay money in order to get married. That's a very simplified version of it. So her family must come up with dowry money if she's ever going to be married. The old uh, Hindi proverb is, uh, a man rejoices when a son is born and he weeps terribly when a daughter is born because he knows he has to pay to get rid of her. And these dowries become weights upon the shoulders of these women. Sometimes they involve long-term responsibilities to provide finance for the husband, for the, uh, for the uh, husband's family. And they end up in, many times, suicide and murder. Now, dowry is illegal, like many things in India. India actually has a very good constitution. The only problem is most of the things that are constitutionally illegal are not enforced. And so dowry still holds reign. It's the darkness. Daughters are born, and, and feeding into that is another darkness that we see in India all the time, the devadasis, another illegal practice that, that is, flourishes in the state where I work often, Karnataka. Devadasis are basically temple prostitutes. And when a family has too many girls, they often have no option but to give one of them up as a, a uh, temple servant of the goddess Yelama. And they're taken uh, before puberty and they're dedicated to this goddess and they live there. And then when they become uh, young women, when they enter puberty, they go into a life of prostitution. Sacred prostitution. And of course it's illegal and people say, oh no, that doesn't exist in India anymore. It does exist. I've met the Devadasis who are, are the, uh, in their older years, are just cast off. It's the darkness. The darkness. I think about India again and, and just even the whole caste system of India. Another issue of social life in India that's illegal. Technically you can't discriminate based on caste, but, but it is so deeply uh, woven into the fabric of Indian culture and society that it controls everything in a person's life. If you're a Dalit, if you're an untouchable, your destiny is set pretty much socially. You might get ahead economically, you might take advantage of some government programs and get an education, but you will never be viewed as an equal by those who are of a higher caste. And most of those in those lower castes are doing the most menial jobs, the most difficult work, and having no opportunity for advancement. It's the darkness. And of course, as we look at, at, at missions globally, the impact that, that Christian missions has had upon this darkness is massive. Uh, the, the practice of burning widows in India was ended because of Christian missionaries like William Carey. Um, and so we're encouraged that, that even these social problems have, have uh, yielded at times to the influence of the gospel and the darkness has been penetrated. But the darkness is not just social problems, is it? I lived in South Africa for 26 years, in the 80s, uh, when apartheid, this, uh, these laws of racial segregation, uh, were, were firmly entrenched in South African society. And uh, I can tell you that, that as dark as those laws were, friends of mine who had tremendous potential but had a ceiling on their head because they were people of color would never advance. As dark as those laws are, 
The darkness isn't the social structure, the social law. It's what's in the human heart, isn't it? And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age, the one who has the authority of darkness in his hands, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're blinded. And then in, in Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which uh, you used to walk, live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that now is at work among those who are disobedient. The darkness is in the human heart. We might wonder, how do we, how do we push back the darkness? How do we actually stop the darkness? And, and every Christian, that should be in our hearts. If we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, what we're praying is, oh God, push back the darkness. We want the day to come when the, the world will be filled with the light of the glory of God. Push back the darkness. How do we do that? We can't. There is no singular answer to how to stop the darkness that is not eschatological, that does not have to do with the ultimate intervention of the Son of God returning to this planet and wresting it from the authority of darkness. That's the ultimate answer. So the question isn't how do we stop the darkness? The question is how do we break the silence? How do we break the silence? Those people living in the darkness who have never heard, and the, heard, never heard. And the answer is very simple. The call of the kingdom. We take the call. The call is powerful. Look what it did in the lives of these Colossians. If you look back in, Colossia, in Colossians chapter 1, it, said, it talks about the fact that this gospel came to them. This gospel that is bearing fruit all over the world. And in verse 7 it says, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. You learned the gospel. Epaphras decided some, one day to bring the gospel to his hometown. It appears it had never gone there before. And he brought the call of the kingdom. A gospel message. It was so much more, so much more than just an a anemic witness. He came there with the truth of what Christ had done. He, it says, I like the fact that it says, he taught you the gospel. I mean, I work in India, so the whole idea of a one-off coming in and telling people, oh, you need Jesus, trust Jesus as your savior, that's a fool's errand. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't understand J-E-S-U-S. -S. They don't understand G-O-D. We have to teach them the gospel. We have to unpack a Christian worldview. We have to help them understand that everything is not Om. Everything is not one, which is the Hindu worldview. God and all of creation are all one. But the Christian worldview is, no, there is an eternal God who exists independently on his own. And then there is a creation that he made. And so we have to teach the gospel. And that's what it says Epaphras did. He came to these people and he taught them the gospel. And as he taught them the gospel, something amazing happened. I, I, uh, I'm not an electrician. I worked in construction for a number of years and uh, did wiring of homes. But the guy who taught me to wire these homes said, okay, here's your electrical training. 
black on black, white on white, five Hail Marys, and hope it's right. <laughs> so that's my electrical training. But, but to use an electrical metaphor, when, we, when Epaphras came to Colossae and taught the gospel, it was like an open circuit. There was nothing he could do to complete that circuit, to make the energy and the power and the intervention of God flow into the lives of these believers. He just went there and taught, and he waited. He taught faithfully. He taught as a steward of God. He understood that, that teaching the message accurately was important, but there was no way, no illustration, no level of rhetoric that could complete the circuit and make energy, the energy of God, flow into the lives of these people. That had to happen when the call of God came from heaven. And it did. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? He's teaching these Colossians, and all of a sudden, the call of God, the call of the kingdom is issued from heaven, and they are delivered from the powers of darkness, and they are instantaneously translated into the kingdom of the Son God loves. Wow. And when you look at the text there in verse 13, it's God's work. There's no hint that Epaphras had any part in it. You know, Paul, we've actually broken into a prayer, and Paul is giving thanks to the Father, and he says, this Father, this God in heaven, ushered, issued a call from heaven, and he delivered you from the powers of darkness. He wrested you from under the authority of Satan. And he then moved you. It's a graphic word. He picked you up and he carried you over and he planted you in the kingdom of his son. Wow. And Epaphras, he got to be a spectator. He got to watch all that happen. It's, it's the amazing, wonderful thing about being a witness for Christ is that we do our best to share the gospel, and then we realize, well, I can't connect this circuit, but when God does it, we get to watch it happen, and God transforms people's lives. We, we spent 10 years planning a church in the Indian community of South Africa, which was a great segue for me to start working in India, but um, Karen would work, my wife would work with these old Indian ladies, and never had much education, everything they knew about their faith, they had learned you know, through tradition, and she would need to teach them the gospel. So she would get, she would get this book by Good, Good Seed called The Lamb. Maybe you've used it with your children or your grandchildren. It's a great book. It starts in Genesis. And all through the Bible, it teaches who the Lamb is. And it helps, helps these ladies understand. And she would teach week after week through this children's book with these old Hindu ladies. And then a miracle would happen. One of them would say, Jesus is the lamb. And they would get it. They would understand that the lamb of God died for their sins. That all of this teaching about the substitutionary death of these animals because of sin ultimately came to realization in Jesus. The call of the kingdom came. And someone is delivered from the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son God loves. The darkness is real. It's impenetrable. Paul said that. He said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 
So we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Why? Because God, who commands light to shine out of darkness, can shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The call of the kingdom issued from heaven as we simply faithfully teach the gospel and then watch it bear fruit. But there's another element here in this letter, and it doesn't directly relate to the Colossians. It relates to Paul. One of the great ironies, one of the great disconnects in the church is that those who have experienced the call of the kingdom, those that have experienced the power of God in their lives, the transformation from darkness to the kingdom of the Son he loves, that those people would not be gripped by that call. It doesn't make sense. The Apostle Paul gives us his testimony here at the end of chapter 1. He says this in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. For I, and I fill up what in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become a servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery which has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And then in verse 28, we proclaim him. We are admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. On that Damascus road, Paul the Pharisee met Jesus Christ and his life was transformed. He heard the call of the kingdom and the call gripped his life. And Paul came to understand something. He came to understand that that, that call is to walk where Jesus walked. And so he says, I am filling up in my body that which is lacking of the suffering of Christ. Now it doesn't mean that the atonement of Jesus needed anything added to it. Jesus died for our sins once for all, paid our debt, and went, rose in victory over our debt. But Paul understood something. The cross stands for more than paying for my sin. The cross is about the will of God. The cross is an emblem of those who find the fullness of life through surrender to the will of the Father. The cross is the calling of every Christian. We like the idea of the calling of glory. We don't like the idea of the calling of the cross. So he says, I understand that my life is to continue to do what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. What did Jesus do when he hung on the cross? He died for the sake of others. Simple as that. That's our calling. That's what the grip of the calling of the kingdom does to us. We understand that we are to live, we are to die for the sake of others. We are to surrender our lives so that others may know, so that others may hear, so that others may grow. And he says, that's what I've given my life to. That's the grip of the call on his life. And that's why he says, according to the energy of God in me, this call has energized me, and my passion is to present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. Wow, you don't have to be a missionary to do that, by the way. That could be your passion at work, couldn't it? I want to see every one of my colleagues presented perfect in Christ Jesus. 
That could be your, your passion as a mom. I want to see every one of my kids perfect in Christ Jesus. But the issue is it has to be the passion of every person who has heard the call. It's the evidence that the call has gripped our lives. That we would labor with all of our energy to present men and women mature in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let me see if I can back up here. The world is, is filled with people who have never heard. I work in a country where there are more unreached people groups than anywhere on the planet. A thousand more than any other nation that have never heard the gospel of Christ. And what is, what is the key? How is that going to happen? How are these people ever going to hear? Well, it's very simple. They're going to hear because God is going to issue his call to the hearts of people and that call is going to grip their lives and they're going to give themselves to winning these people to Christ. We hold, we hold training sessions in this pastor's church. His name is Devadu, N. Devadu. He was a Maoist, Communist Party, uh, terrorist basically, and then he heard the gospel and he heard the call to kingdom. Boom, called out of darkness. Turned his back on that, went into 40 days of fasting and prayer. That's what these people are like. They challenge me. I mean, I go to India and I think I am such a spiritual gnat compared to these people. He goes into 40 days of fasting and prayer and God puts on his heart the unreached people of the forest of Andhra Pradesh. And he gets a horse, I think you can't hardly see it there, and he starts riding deep into these forests and preaching the gospel to these people. No support, nobody, he just, he heard the call, and the call gripped his life, and he said, these people have never heard, and he went into these villages, literally, that had never, ever heard the gospel of Jesus. And he did that for 20 years. Raised his family, took them in there, 40 churches planted in a group of people, these tribes that Joshua Project lists as an unreached people group, 40 churches. He trained pastors. They have leadership. They're expanding the ministry. Why? How did that happen? It didn't happen because of anything that happened here in America. It happened because God issued his call to the heart of a man in India who then allowed that call to grip his heart and he became passionate about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The call of the kingdom. So the two questions that, that I have for you this morning are very simple. Have you heard the call? Have you heard the call of Jesus saying, there's freedom from the darkness. There's light available. I want to give you an inheritance among the saints of the kingdom of light. Have you heard that call? Have you responded to the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and offers you salvation for free. Have you heard the call? That's the first question. And the second question is, if you've heard the call, does it have a grip on your life? Do you understand that he called you in order that you might continue what Jesus started? Fill up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, for the sake of those who need to know. I want to ask you to just think about those two questions, reflect on them. I trust that God will, will use them and that if uh, you need to make some decision along those lines, that you'll talk to one of the leaders here at the church and, and just ask God to, to help you respond to the call. Father, we pray that you might continue to work in our lives. We thank you for calling us out of darkness. Thank you for uh, the life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the power of the gospel and the power of the call. And we pray that it would grip our lives and that we would dedicate ourselves, Lord, uh, wherever you have placed us, whatever our vocation, however we're
feeding our families, that we would dedicate ourselves, Lord, to living out the grip of that call in Jesus' name. Amen.